Hello, welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series 7, The Root Vices. This series looks at the seven root vices from which other sins grow and identifies ways we can cut the root vices and become more like Jesus. We can make our way back, and before we even begin uh, the teaching this morning, I'll just mention we've had a lot of those songs each week uh, trying to just point out to us that uh, these seven root vices are throughout the movies we watch, the TV shows we watch, and even the music we listen to. Uh, that song there was an old blues classic called Have You Ever Loved a Woman? Uh, that was a version by Derek and the Dominoes, and it's rather ironic if you love music like I do. Eric Clapton had fled uh, England, started a new group here in America because literally, as the song says, he wanted a woman. He loved her, but she had his best friend's last name because he was wanting George Harrison's wife at the time. And so uh, songs we listen to are oftentimes built around these very things that we're talking about. So today we're going to be looking, our text for today is going to be 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. The text is on the card you have there in front of you, and you can follow along up here on the screen as well or in your Bibles. I'll be using the New International Version this morning. We're going to talk about God's Word and what God has to say to us regarding the vice of lust and why it's deforming and misshaping of our humanity. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 8, hear now the word of the living God. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject men, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. So this week I almost did not go over this final vice, because I thought of all of the root vices, this is one that America has no problem with at all. I couldn't come up with a movie that dealt with sexual behavior going awry or lust. It's just not something we deal with in our culture at all, is it? We realize, in fact, Dorothy Sayers wrote a, uh, a, a series of, of articles on what she referred to as the other six deadly sins because she said when we think of deadly sins, the one that our modern preoccupation has come down to has oftentimes been lust. And so of all of the ones, many of us recognize that this is one that is rampant in our world and in our culture. Uh, I saw a, a self-diagnosed uh, diagnostic test for whether you have lust or not, and the test went like this. Question one, are you human? You flunk. That's the, that's the diagnosis for it. Um, which really, really is true. And if you, if you say you don't, then you have a problem with lying, which would be another sin and problem. 
So today we want to deal with this because it is so rampant in our world and in our culture. What is lust? Is it really a problem? And if so, how do we fight against it? So we're going to dive in. Now, we're going to begin by looking at the problem of lust. And it's important for us to recognize, while this is something we see in our culture, it's actually been things that human beings have struggled with for a long time. In many ways, our current culture mirrors the culture in which the early church found itself much more than it has at any time over the last like 15 or 1600 years. We are actually facing many things just like the early church. And so we can see when Paul writes to the Thessalonians, these are Gentiles that have just come to the faith and they are coming out of the Greco-Roman culture and Paul knows one of the major things they are going to be fighting against is lust and sexual sin because their entire culture encouraged them in another pattern of behavior. And so Paul tells us that our sexual behavior is a big part of our call as Christians. So notice in verses 1 to 3, Paul's here, and this is in chapter 4, he's been laying out the gospel earlier in the letter. You remember we looked at it last year, and the whole letter was really kind of had a central theme of holiness. And Paul has talked about what it means to be a Christian. And now in chapter 4, he says, I'm going to tell you how to live in order to please God. There in verse 1. So let's remind ourselves, this is not that we behave this way so that we can be God's children. That's not what the gospel teaches us. The gospel says we are God's children by grace through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul is saying, okay, but now that that is true, what does that mean for how you conduct your life? And he knows for the Thessalonians, one of the struggles they're going to have is that the surrounding culture teaches them things very differently than what God does. And so he tells us here, notice a couple of times he says, uh, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, there in verse 2, and then, I'm in verse 1, and he says, you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So Paul is reminding them that these instructions are by Jesus's authority. And as I said, there's a lot of parallels between today and back then, because see, what people were tempted to say back then was, well, that's Paul. And Paul, after all, is repressed. And he's got struggles and difficulties. I read this stuff all the time that people want to say, well, Jesus didn't actually speak about these things. Which, first off, is not true. He actually did. But secondly, Paul's reminding us that when Paul speaks, Jesus is actually speaking. There is no difference between what Jesus says and what Paul says because he is teaching by the authority of the Lord Jesus and he is urging them in the Lord Jesus. And he says, here's what the instructions were. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. That's just another word for holy. In the Greek, it's the same word. Sanctified, holy, the word saints is actually from the same word word. And he says, so you should be sanctified. And what that means is that you should avoid sexual immorality. So he says, God's will for you as his children is that you live in holiness. And at the center of what that's going to mean for you is certain sexual conduct. Sexual behavior is an important part of holiness. And this is important for us because the in the first century, there were those, and today there are those, and in fact, in every intervening century, there have always been those who say that sexual behavior is not part of discipleship. But the fact is, they're wrong. 
God is very clear that it is part of our discipleship because it's an important part of our humanity and our Christianity. So this subject deals with what it means to be human, and it also is at the core what it means to be Christian. So what is it that Paul's telling us? Well, in this text, he goes on to say that our sexual lives must be characterized by godly control. Notice in verses 4 and 5, he says that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. So Paul says you have to learn to control your body. Now the reason he's saying that is you and I are tempted to follow every urge we have. We've seen that throughout the series. We engage in gluttony because our body says, I want more food, right? We engage in greed because we feel this craving for more stuff. Every one of the things are these urges. And Paul says, look, when it comes to your sexual behavior, you're going to have urges, but you have to learn which is good and which is evil. And you are not controlled by the urges and desires. Rather, you control the urges and desires. Such sexual self-control, Paul tells us, is part of holiness. And notice he goes on and he, he refers to not living in passionate lust. The opposite of being in self-control is living in passionate lust. And the word lust originally just meant strong desire. That's what the, the Greek word means. Originally, it could have actually meant a strong desire for something good. And there are a few times that it's used that way in the New Testament. But it very often came to be used for a desire for something that was not good, and in particular, it oftentimes refers to sexual desires that are just running rampant and are not under control. And so Paul's not dealing just with external actions, but he's driving to the underlying desires, the underlying attitude that is there that he refers to. It. And he, he actually is kind of interesting in the Greek. The word means basically strong desires, but he adds to it passionate strong desires. Because he's getting, he's saying, this is like a fire that's starting to rage out of control. And Paul there very bluntly says, if you're controlled by those desires, you don't know God. He just draws a dichotomy out because he's saying, look, if you truly were the child of God, then you were on this path where you don't want to be controlled by these things. Rather, you want to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul says, if you're being controlled by these passionate lusts, then you really don't know God. And he's digging down. Notice, he's wanting to get at the root of the behavior. He's saying that it is to be controlled by passionate lust is the opposite of being controlled by God. And so he's saying we've got to dig down to underneath the actual behavior itself to what's driving it. Because the culture was just telling them, just, just behave this way. It doesn't matter. And in fact, this infected the church. In Corinth, Paul had to deal with the exact same problem. So Paul then goes on and says, and look, there's another reason why this is important, and that is that you cannot involve others in sexual sin. By definition, when you're engaging in sexual sin, you are dragging others into it. So in verse 6, he says, In this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The old word was defraud, to, to raise a desire in someone that can't be righteously met. And Paul says you cannot do this. So contrary to what our culture says, see, if you, if you hear among these sins, people say, well, this is a sin that doesn't really hurt anybody. 
That's what they want to say, okay? I mean, if it's greed and you go rob a bank, you've hurt someone. But if it's two consenting adults, no harm, no foul. But Paul says it's actually the opposite of that. Our sexual immorality is never a solitary sin. It's not only a sin against God, but whomever I engage in that behavior with, I've now drugged them into my sin, and so I'm doubly guilty. I've sinned before and against God, but I've also sinned against that person because I've drugged them into my sexual immorality. And it does not matter, Paul would say, whether they're consenting or not. You can't consent to something that God says you may not do. I, I don't have the freedom to be able to do such a thing. And so Paul says you're not to engage in or lead others to sexual sin by word, by attitude, or by other sexual acts. And the reason for this, he then goes on, and in words that would be really popular in our culture today, says, God will judge sexual immorality as a rejection of him. So notice in verses 6 to 8, it says, The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. Now, let me point out real briefly, if you go back and you read in the book of Acts, Paul only got to stay in Thessalonica for about three weeks. He was chased out because they were trying to kill him. So what Paul is saying when he says, we already told you and warned you, I'm just reminding you what you already told you, is Paul is saying, when we came and planted a church and we were only there for a couple of weeks, these things I'm reminding you of were so basic, they formed part of your early, I mean, you became a believer and right off the bat we started telling you the most important things to know and it included this. This is not a, a later thing. It's right at the heart of what it means to walk as a Christian. And so Paul says God's going to punish people for all such sin because he calls his children to live holy lives of sexual purity. And notice in verse 8, he says, He who rejects this instruction does not reject man. Again, Paul's going back and saying, contrary to what we say today, because they said the same thing back then, well, that's just Paul. Paul says, no, if you reject this, you're not rejecting me. You're rejecting God is who you're doing. And notice, who gives you his, what, what's the name of the Spirit? Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit, Paul says, you can't walk in unholiness. So Paul here would let us know that embracing God's eternal, unchanging standards for sexual conduct is not an option for Christians but rather it's a central part of our call. And that was as hard for the Thessalonians to hear and understand around 50 AD as it is for us almost 2,000 years later because their culture was as off in this area as our culture is. If anything, it might have even been a little bit worse. So how do we walk regarding this? So let's go in and look at this root vice of lust. And we're going to follow the same pattern we follow with every one of these root vices because we're going to be looking not only at what the, the, the vice is, but we're specifically looking at how it is a disordered love, how it tries to shape our identity, and then we'll talk about some of the fruit sins that come out of it. So first, how do we define it as a disordered love? I defined it this way. Lust is a disordered love that excessively craves my own sexual pleasure, desiring it more than true intimacy with God or others. 
Again, it's on the card in front of you, and actually I'm going to come back to this. Everybody got a sheet today that's got every one of these things that we've talked about over the last seven weeks to help us uh, keep this fastened before us. But that, that's our definition. So let me kind of break this down. First, lust is an excessive craving regarding sex. Notice here that it's a disordered love that excessively craves my own sexual pleasure. Now, the reason I've defined it that way is who created sex? God. Okay, there are some, and sometimes the church unfortunately reinforced this message as if God was taken off guard when humans discovered sex. But that's not the case. In fact, if we go back to Genesis chapter 1, we discover sex uh, in itself is God's good gift to humanity. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God declares he's going to create humans. And when he does create humans, here's the very first thing we're told that God does. Verse 28 in Genesis 1. God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Now, everybody work with me here. It's been a long time since I took biology or human reproduction. To be fruitful and increase in number, what does that require for human beings? Right. Now, see, I want you to understand something here. And, and we go, when we do pre-marriage counseling, my wife always laughs because I tell people I'm the least embarrassed preacher you will ever meet to talk about any of this stuff because God's not embarrassed by it. Could God have made us to where the way we were fruitful and increased in number was, I don't know, break a finger off and it grows into a new person? He could have. There are animals that split in part that way. It could have been non-sexual reproduction. Did God do that for human beings? No, he did not. It is his design for us. Sex is God's idea. It is God's gift, and notice actually here, verse 28, it's also God's command for humanity. So far from being something that God was caught off guard by or something God was against, he actually gave it to us. It was his idea, and then he commanded humanity to be involved and engage in this. And I, I need some help here on my Bible, too. Is Genesis 1 before the first sin or after the first sin? Before. So is sex part of our fallen natures? Oh, well, we're messed up now, so now there's going to be sex. Or was it part of God's original design for us? Original design. In just a couple of verses, God is going to say it is all very good. Every day it's been good, it's been good. But at the end of this, it's very good. And that includes God's gift of sex for us, which is why actually in the Scripture, sex is celebrated. Uh, Proverbs chapter 5, I'll just give one verse here. Proverbs chapter 5, verses 18 and 19 says, May your fountain be blessed, and it's been referring to waters, not drinking waters from another man's well, referring to another guy's wife committing adultery. So may your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. That's, that's Bible, not some CD website. Okay, God is doing that. And in fact, the entire book, the Song of Solomon, and sometimes the church has tried to get around this, we read it, and people said, wow, that sounds like an erotic love poem, but I know it can't be that. Except for, it sounds like that's what it is because that's actually what it is. And it's a celebration of God's gift of sexuality to us. But the interesting thing is, here in Proverbs 5, while it's celebrating it again, the point 
is an older man speaking to a younger man and saying, you should be celebrating and enjoying sexuality with your wife, not someone else. Because if you do it with your wife, it's wonderful and blessed. If it's with someone else, it falls under the judgment of God. And it's destructive to who you are. So God has given us this gift of sex, but lust distorts the gift of sex in one of two ways. First, it's either sexual desire for the wrong person. The first way is sexual desire for the wrong person, which in Scripture is anyone other than my legal spouse. Okay, we want to try and get around this today, but there is no getting around it. The, the biblical term porneia, which I'll mention in a couple minutes ago, is the most general term for immorality. Biblically, if you look in the Old Testament, it referred to anything other than a man and a woman who were bound to one another in marriage. Any other time, any other way, any other relationship, the Scripture says it is wrong. It precludes all premarital sex, all extramarital sex, all same-sex activity, Keep naming whatever things you want. All of them are precluded in thought, word, deed. That's what the Scripture teaches. And not just in one place or two places, in lots and lots and lots of places. From Genesis to Revelation, all the way through, all major sections, and yes, Jesus himself actually did talk about this, and he used that word, porneia, that I just mentioned. So that's the first way, sexual desire for the wrong person. And that desire is condemned by Scripture simply because there is no way for me to have that desire for the wrong person rightly. Second way, however, is sexual desire that desires the right person wrongly. The first one was a desire for the wrong person the second one is a desire for the right person, but the desire itself has become twisted and it's wrong. And what we mean by that is I can have a desire for my spouse, but I can view sex with them wrongly. I can turn them into an object for my gratification. And we've seen this over and over again in these root vices. And this is what it is. It was a good desire, but I have now turned my, what would have been a good desire for my wife into an object for my gratification. She really, in essence, ceases to be a person. I just need somebody to feed my lust. That's what happens. So that's the two ways it can go wrong. Now what that means then is, going back to our definition, is lust is focused on my pleasure rather than intimacy. Notice what we said is, is desire it more than true intimacy with God or with others. The reason God confines sex to legal marriage in the Scripture is because it's more than a physical act. We sometimes want to make either too much of sex or too little. And some people act like it's, well, it's just a physical act. But that's not true. Sex is actually the bonding of two people physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Sex is God's gift that is glue for a relationship between a man and a woman. It is meant to bond them together, to form a permanent bond between two people. And this is why in the book, Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, there's actually a warning several times. One of them is in Song of Songs 8-4, where the people warn, don't wake this too early. Don't do this too early. I've had to sadly talk to people. I remember talking with a, a young woman a few years ago. I was in our church for a while until she had moved. And 
She had had a pattern of getting into relationships and then getting sexually involved and then the relationship turning south. And one of the things I told her is, is it's because you've injected something into the relationship way before the relationship was ready to sustain it. And then what it does is it messes everything else up in the relationship because you've done this. And then the real problem that starts to happen is in lust, it uh, rejects the intimate bonding core of sex and it tries to treat it simply as an act for physical pleasure and gratification. If you're a little bit older, you may remember the movie years ago, Indecent Proposal. In it, Woody Harrelson's married to Demi Moore and uh, Robert Redford decides he wants to be more, and so he offers a million dollars for one night with her. And at first they're like, well, no, we're not going to do this. But then they start thinking, greed starts working along with the lust that's going on in the story. And there's this tragic time where they're deciding what they're going to do, and Demi Moore looks to her husband, Woody Harrelson, and she says, look, it's not like I'm going to be doing something really serious. I'm just giving him my body, not my soul. And then as you watch the rest of the movie, you discover that, no, you're not. That's not what's going on there, and you all are not going to just get by this. It destroys the whole relationship between them because it is always something more than just a bodily act. And so this is part of why, again, God says no to this before marriage because um, those who are giving themselves to many different people, in essence, what they're doing is they're giving away part of their soul. If any of you have ever read the, the fantasy series Harry Potter, you may know that the, the bad guy in it, he splits his soul into seven parts and sticks them in all of these objects. And the more he does that, the more he splits his soul up, the darker and darker and more and more evil he becomes, the less and less human he becomes because his soul is being fractured and split. And that's actually what we do when we engage. This is why God says, don't do this because it is destructive to you. And so that's the reason before marriage, but it's also even possible in marriage to treat sex as merely a means of physical pleasure. And I'm avoiding true intimacy because sex is meant to increase intimacy, to bond the intimacy, and to, to feed it into the future. But if I approach it and I'm not after intimacy, then I'm engaged simply in lust, not love. They're two very different things, and so we are not authorized to do that by God even within marriage. Just saying we're married doesn't mean that it can't be lustful because the purpose of the sexual relationship is actually to increase the bond between a man and a wife that are married to one another. And when we try to avoid that, and it is possible sometimes we don't want that intimacy, but we are now misusing God's gift to us. Now, how this works in our identity, we've looked at every one of these talking about the identity, is when I'm given over to lust, I seek to find my identity in my sexual desires and activity rather than God and his will. Now, we remind ourselves, as we always say, you know, the, 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 probably the most famous question in a catechism ever in the English language is, you know, uh, why did God create humans? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
But what lust says is, no, the central reason I am here, my central identity is not being the image of God. It's not knowing and loving and glorifying God. My central identity is whatever my sexual urges and desires are. My sexual desires and activity define who I am. Is this a major problem in our culture? Go talk to someone whose sexual activity is prohibited by the Scripture, and what you're told is you're attacking who I am as a person. But no, I'm not. Who you are as a person is the image of God. My behaviors and my desires may be part of that, or they may be errant. They may be wandering and wrong. But they never define who I am. Being the image of God defines who I am. But in lust, that gets transformed and changed. And so it's a gross violation of God's will and also of reality. And it's because of that, lust is a futile desire that can never be satisfied. A couple of the authors that I read had some quips about, in particular, the nature of lust. This is true of all of these vices, But in particular with lust, Graham Tomlin, uh, an English theologian, said this, the problem is that lust is like eczema. The more we scratch it, the more it itches. See, it doesn't get better. It tells us if you just scratch this, it's going to be better. But in fact, it doesn't. It just gets worse. Frederick Buechner, in his reasoning through and thinking about these seven vices, when he came to lust, he said this, lust is like the craving for salt of a man who is dying of thirst. You're dying of thirst and you just keep getting more salt. And what does it keep doing? Making you more thirsty and more thirsty. And in fact, it ultimately would kill you. And so this is what happens. And it's specifically the way Satan wants to work with this particular sin. In the screw tape letters, I'm going to put up a quote here by C.S. Lewis. If you've never read screw tape letters, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Uh, I reread it a couple of times last year. It's, it's a senior demon writing to a junior demon about how to tempt human beings and how to work and trap them in sin. And so in this particular one, the senior demon is writing to the junior demon, and he says this. He, he's trying to note, we we demons and Satan, we've tried to create real pleasure and we've never been able to do it. But we, we've never, only God, our enemy, as he calls him, seems to be able to do that. And so here's what he says. All we can do is encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy, that's God, which God has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. To get a man's soul and give him nothing in return, that's what really gladdens our father Satan's heart. And that's exactly what goes on in lust. Ever greater desire, ever diminishing return. And in the end, when we give in, we discover we've traded our soul for nothing. That's exactly what goes on. That's why this is so serious. So let's think about the fruits of lust. How does this work? Well, obviously, one fruit that would immediately come to mind is lust leads to sinful sexual activity. It leads to either sexual fantasies and practices such as pornography, which is rampant in our culture, and they are discovering how destructive it is. I just read a sad article in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago where they had all these young guys who, who 
their idea of sex is being formed by pornography. And then the New York Times, in all their wisdom, like a day or two later, had a guy who's a pornographic star, apparently, write that what we need to do is come up with better forms of pornography. That's like saying we'll get better forms of heroin to try and solve the opioid epidemic. You can't. It's the problem. You, more of that, cleaner versions of that, is not going to work. But it also leads, obviously, to fornication, adultery, homosexuality, pedophilia, you name the type of sexual sin. They are all underlain by lust. Jesus pointed this out in Matthew chapter 5. We won't put it up on the screen, but Matthew 5, 27 to 30, Jesus said, look, you all are saying, you know, uh, thou shalt not commit adultery, which is true, but I'm telling you, if you look that way, you've already committed it in your heart. It's a problem, and Jesus says, therefore, you've got to deal with the root issue. And so, ultimately, when we think about it, these practices lead to the breakup of families and the loss of friendships, and we've all seen this over and over. Contrary to my joke at the beginning, how many movies are built around these kind of problems that develop? As I mentioned, that, that song that we played, Eric Clapton pined away for years for George Harrison's wife, and she eventually left him for Eric Clapton. And then Clapton cheated on her with somebody else. And then that marriage fell apart. But that's exactly what lust does. Another way that it works out, however, is to get its object, lust will lie or steal or even kill. Anybody remember a guy named King David? David, the man after God's own heart, when one day he looks and he sees Bathsheba and lust starts taking hold and the next thing you know, David is not only committing adultery with Bathsheba, perhaps against her will, the scripture's not real clear there, but in either event, suddenly David is lying, he's bringing her husband home, he's getting him drunk, uh, he's trying to convince him to go home and sleep with her, and it's pathetic because Uriah is so faithful to David, he won't do any of that, and so David finally puts a contract out, a hit on Uriah, and gives the instructions to do it in Uriah's own hand because he knows Uriah is so faithful, he won't look at the contract out on his own head. David involves all kinds of other people in his sin because that's what lust does. Another thing is it fosters all kinds of relationship problems. As I mentioned before, what lust does is it undermines the natural development of a relationship, especially in its earlier stages. And we wonder why we have so many problems in our relationships today when we got a culture of hooking up that quite literally right now, one of the problems is that people don't consider having sex to be a serious step in a relationship, but taking the person home to meet your parents, that's a serious step. So we might have been engaging in sex for a long time before we've even met the parents. And then we wonder why the relationships struggle. They struggle because we're violating reality. And we can change it, we can decree it however we want, it won't change reality. And so it undermines relationships. But it also causes frustration because its demands can never be met. It's the guy who's dying of thirst and he's getting more and more salt and he's getting more and more frustrated because the salt is promising it's going to slake the thirst, but it never, ever does. And when lust leads to unfaithfulness, it produces guilt, 
which undermines open communication and warmth in a relationship. The very thing that the sexual act was meant to do, which is to bond the relationship, to increase warmth, to bring two people closer together, it's now breaking them apart. It's doing the exact opposite of what it was intended to do. Uh, Another area, just to think through the, the fruits, lust actually undermines our humanity. It undermines the humanity of the other person in our eyes, and ultimately it undermines my own humanity. Because when I view someone with lust, not love, but with lust, it degrades them in my eyes. They're just simply a sexual object, not a person, not the image of God, not who they were actually made to be. And So lust ends up undermining my own humanity because to successfully separate love and relationship from sex is to become less human. By definition, to think that I can separate those two out actually undermines my own humanity. I can give you another story in Scripture. Flowing out of David's sin, if you remember, he had a son named Amnon. And Amnon fell in love, well, he fell in lust for Tamar. And he wants Tamar, and he desires her, and it says he becomes physically sick. He's wanting her so bad. And then he forces himself upon Tamar, and the the crazy thing is, right after he does that, and she's laying there broken, he now despises her. Just like that. He turns. And friends, if, if you don't think that happens today, it happens all the time. Because lust reduces the humanity of the other person in our eyes, and then it reduces my own humanity. And once that has happened, Katie, bar the door. We can, you never believe how we will treat one another. Which is why exactly one of the ways that lust has worked out today is it leads to human trafficking. Stuff that you don't even want to know. I remember years ago when Tony Marsh... In our church, he was undercover doing work, and we were in small group praying for him because he was having to deal with people who were dealing with human trafficking, and he just said, even being around them and doing what I'm doing, it eats away at your soul. It's so hard to be around people who view other people this way, and people were just so much trash to be marketed and sold off, and human trafficking happens the world over. That's why we work with a couple of ministries over in India and Nepal that deal with it. But friends, it happens right here as well. So lust, John Piper says, is a a sexual desire that dishonors its object and it disregards God. So that's why this is serious stuff. It's not to be played with. It's not what Hugh Hefner tried to make it out to be. It degrades the very core of our soul. So How do we apply the word? How do we fight against this? I'm again going to remind us of several different, the the opposing virtues and then also practices. Well, the first thing is opposing lust is we need to embrace chastity. Embrace chastity. There's two parts to this. Uh, Because lust leads to sexual behavior and chastity is the decision I'm going to lead a sexually holy life, two, two things come out. Number one, abstinence, which is until I am married, there is no sexual activity because any sexual activity prior to marriage is by definition sinful, always. 
No matter what, no matter how I feel, no matter what I think, no matter what excuses I come up with, by definition, always sinful. So prior to marriage, there must be abstinence. Secondly, though, within marriage, there has to be faithfulness. Abstinence prior to marriage, faithfulness within marriage. Because again, this is chastity. This is the opposite of lust. And that is faithfulness in thought, word, and deed. Because the the issue we're dealing with is as a root vice, it's not just the external behavior, it's what's going on in the heart. Which is why it can get to be such a struggle. So, it's important. Now, let me be clear. This, what our culture would view as a negative step, okay, this negative step of chastity, it's not enough. But you have to begin here. If I can't be abstinent prior to marriage and faithful within marriage, there is no hope of me overcoming lust and all of its sinful fruits, okay? It has to begin here. We'll never achieve freedom from lust if we don't strive to avoid immoral sexual activity that flows from it. We, we just can't. Second uh, virtue, however, is not just chastity, it is purity. We need to practice purity, okay? And that's because we live in a culture that feeds and encourages lust. How many of you know you, when you walk out of here today, you are not going to have to go looking for things that try to stir up lust in your heart? I mean, you can turn on TV this afternoon and watch somebody selling an inane product. It might be selling beer, and how did, what did they use to sell it? Lust. Remember when I mentioned at the beginning of the series that they had gone to the advertisers and said, we want each of you to create an ad to sell each of the seven deadly sins. And the one that every advertiser wanted was lust. Because that was easy. Because they've been, they've been selling lust for years. They don't try to sell other things as openly, but we try to sell lust. So we have to make a concerted effort if we're going to live in purity. So how do we do that? Well, two practices to do it. Number one is to avoid. We have to avoid known sources of temptation. That's places, that is media. And by media, I'm talking whether it's on the internet, whether it's movies, whether it's music, whatever it is that stirs these desires up within me, we avoid them. Or it may even be particular people. Now, our culture doesn't like hearing this, but how stupid it is if I tell you I'm an alcoholic, and then you meet me and say, where are you going? And I say, to the bar. But I'm not giving in. What are the odds I'm going to succeed? Less than zero, right? Let's be honest. I mean, I used to tell guys when I volunteered down at the jail, I would tell guys all the time, look, when you leave here, and they'd be coming to Bible study, and they'd be doing well, and they'd be doing things, I'd say, if you leave here and go back down to the block and hang out with the same people doing the same things you did before, you're going to see my sad face in the future when you're right back here in the jail in my Bible study again. Because if you're in those places, you're not avoiding what got you in trouble. So there is simply avoidance. I won't put the scripture up, but 1 Corinthians 6.18, Paul said, flee sexual immorality. Just run away from it. Okay? That's not normally what he says. He normally tells us to stand against things and fight, but he says this one, just run. Just get away from it. Avoid it. But the second thing is not only to avoid, it's to be accountable. And that means if, if we're having a struggle, find somebody who can pray with us and for us and that we can even confess what our struggles are to. That's actually a good practice 
in fighting every form of sin. We've talked about that before, way back in one of the earlier uh, vices. So avoidance and then accountability. Because again, if we don't practice purity in our daily lives, it's going to be virtually impossible to embrace and practice chastity. Because it's, this is the root nature of it. But there's one last uh, virtue I want to talk about. And it's because it's actually the virtue that is the opposite of lust. And that is love. We need to cultivate love. Love and lust are polar opposites in every way. Love is the giving of one's entire self. Lust is the taking of physical pleasure from another person. Love is about relationship. Lust is about self-gratification. Love is able to be content. Lust always craves more. Love makes us more fully human. Lust dehumanizes us and the person on whom we've set our craving. They are literally opposite in every way. Love is about giving. Lust is about taking. And as I said with greed, this is a deep sin because at the heart of the universe, the heart of reality is the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, who eternally exist in a relationship of giving, of love. And lust comes along and says, no, what's the deep reality at the core of the universe is take, get. And we have violated reality at its deepest level. This is why it so dehumanizes us. So to put off lust, we have to put on the opposing virtue of love. And there's one particular practice I want to encourage in that, and then we'll close. And that is community. One of the things that undermines lust is to be in true, loving, giving healthy, non-sexual relationships. You can have genuine friendships and fellowship that have nothing to do with sexuality, which is one of the lies in our culture. We want to make things to be, everything has to be sexual. Well, it does not have to be sexual. Lust grows in solitary darkness, but the light of friendships causes it to dry and wither. There's nothing like the light of true fellowship to shine on lust and put it down. Lust views relationships in a sexualized manner. That's how it views the world. In community, we learn to grow in non-sexual relationships. And so we, learn, we need to learn to cultivate true emotional intimacy with other people. Because again, that's what lust is trying to say. I don't need relationship. I don't need intimacy, really with God or with others. I just need to get my gratification. And that's a sickness that eats away at our soul. And so in community, we learn to build true emotional intimacy and non-sexual relationship, and that exposes the lie of lust that tries to substitute sex for our needs for emotional intimacy. See, like every one of these other root vices, we're made a certain way by God, and then what we do is we mishear. Last week we talked about our spiritual longings, we mishear and we raid the icebox, right? Right? And I think if I can just stuff some chocolate in, that'll answer my spiritual longings. But it won't. You and I are made with a need for emotional intimacy. And not just between a husband and a wife. With people. With God. But lust misinterprets that. And always takes it to be something sexual. But that's the reason it can never fulfill that 
longing. And this is particularly why it's important, I believe, we need cross-generational relationships to learn the, the full extent of what it means to be human. See, this is another way our culture has done it, is we want to break everybody down into ever narrower groups so we can be marketed to is one of the reasons. And we want to break it down like that. And what God has made us for is human community. Young and old and male and female and black and white and Asian and every other description of humanity, whatever your level of education, whatever your economic background, that we are together because what defines us is we're the image of God. And what defines us as believers is despite our sin, Jesus has come and has borne it in our place and brought us into the kingdom of God. And community exposes the lie that tries to reduce our humanity down to something else. And so it is a healthy breath of fresh air for us that undermines the pull of lust. So it may be shocking to us, but there's nothing better than just hanging out with a few people in a small group or something to undermine lust. And to say, this is I was made for relationship, not taking, taking, taking. So I'm going to close. We're going to pray in just a minute, but I want to remind us, we've been going through this series, and everybody today received, if you received one of the handouts, inside it there is a page like this that's got two parts to it. On one side is the really cool graphic that Steph made that reminds us that these seven vices are what underlies all the fruitfulness of that tree, the sinful fruitfulness. And they all grow out of that disordered love. Okay, And on the back, there is a table that every week we have defined each of the vices as how it's a disordered love, how it misshapes my identity, what the opposing virtues were, and what the practices were. This is what we've been doing and what we've been going through, our, our devotions together and everything else. So on one table here, you got this. I want to encourage you because we're, we're done with the series. We're moving on to something else. Are you and I ever going to be done with this struggle? Not until we wake up in glory, friends. Okay? These things are going to be there. And we want to experience the freedom and the joy that Jesus has for us. And freedom and joy is not found in these vices. It's not found in pride and envy and wrath. It's not found in sloth. It's not found in greed or gluttony or lust. It's found in becoming more like Jesus. So I want to encourage you to think through these things and continue to look at them and what that means. Continue to ask God to help you cut the root, okay, to, to work through this. This is something I've been, I've been meditating on this stuff for two years, like I said, before we even got to the series. And working on it, I encourage you to do the same. And we're asking Jesus to do it, not just so we can say, hey, look how I cut that root, but because the goal is I want to be like Jesus. I want the soil in my life that I am feeding off of to be a properly ordered love. That, as we began the meeting today, that says, I'm not seeking my rest somewhere else, I'm seeking it in Jesus. And I'm trying to become more like him. And I'm trying to grow in virtue rather than vice. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna stand together and I encourage us, we're going to kind of pray, and I'm going to pray not just about lust, but really all of these vices. And I encourage us, let's join in together and ask God to uh, do this in us. Father, 
we recognize um, this week is its holy week, Lord, that some of the very same people that welcomed Jesus on that day as he came into Jerusalem, Lord, the next week they were crying out for his head. Father, we have a tendency to turn back and forth, to seek our ways apart from your ways. And Lord, we don't want to do that because we realize that true freedom is being your servant. That true life is knowing you. That true joy comes from being formed into your image. And so Lord, as we go forth and we have spent all of these weeks considering these vices, Lord, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would cut these root vices in our life. Lord, we don't want to be proud and arrogant. We want to be humble like you were, Jesus. We don't want to be full of envy, but rather we want to be content, Lord, with who you made us to be and how we can walk in that, Lord. We want to be overflowing with gratitude. Father, as we look at every one of these vices, Lord, we want to put off the old and put on the new so that we are more like Jesus. So Lord, I pray for your Holy Spirit to be with us this week, that you would help us to do that. Lord, as some of us will be gathering on Good Friday, Lord, and we will consider and mourn over our own sin, but also as we come together next Sunday. Lord God, we ask that the power of the resurrection would be alive in us, that the joy of the resurrection would overwhelm our uh, attempts to live in vice and sin. That, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, you would set us free and that you would make us like Jesus because being like him is who we were made to be and therefore it is ultimate joy both now and forever. Lord, I ask and pray that you would do all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now receive the blessing of God. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Go and serve him in love. See everybody later this week. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.